Ladies and gentlemen, start your stopwatches because you're listening to the dispatches on the clock and that means we're going to spend the next 15 minutes or less talking about why no one should be celebrating the farcical spectacle that is the outcome of the Alex Jones trial. Okay, for those who don't know much about Alex Jones or about this trial, I'm not going to go into all the gory details, but in a nutshell, Alex Jones is a guy who's a bit of a conspiracy theory uh, guy. He's got an online video show. He's got a reasonable following. And when the Sandy Hook School shooting happened in the States, he mused, I think rather foolishly, that maybe it wasn't real, that maybe there were crisis actors involved. And so he said something which is quite clearly offensive and understandably very, very emotionally upsetting to the parents of the victims of the Sandy Hook School shooting, and it obviously has caused them uh, quite a bit of distress to have someone publicly speaking about the killing of their children in this way. It was a foolish thing to say. He has since, if I understand the facts of this case correctly, he has subsequently renounced those claims and said no, that he was wrong to have ever said such things. Uh, But he still made those claims initially. Now, for those who are wondering, I'm not really interested in defending Alex Jones for the original claims that he made. I'm not a closet Alex Jones fan for anybody who might be wondering to themselves whether or not this is maybe just my secret attempt to defend the man. I'm really not a fan of Alex Jones at all. I have never watched an Alex Jones show. The only thing I know of, the only clips, if you like, I've seen of Alex Jones have been either A, clips from his show that do the rounds and some of the comedy variations of the things that he said over the years or interviews that he's done with other people on their shows. But I've never watched an Alex Jones show in my life. What I understand about the guy is basically he's an eccentric. And this is one of the great paradoxes of our current age. We live in a culture that really can't handle eccentrics who start to get too close to the truth. And that's what I see Alex Jones as being. And the paradox here, of course, is at the same time, this very same culture will celebrate deviants who tell lies. So if you get a bloke who says, well, I'm really a woman, and then he proceeds to parody womanhood in the most absurd fashion, people say, oh, that's very diverse, and we should celebrate that. That's a really beautiful thing. So we celebrate deviants, but we can't handle eccentrics who actually start to get close to the truth. And Alex Jones's whole shtick in a nutshell is that he claims that there is a corrupt society that we are living in, that those in power don't really act according to principle, and a lot of harm is being done by them and their various nefarious plots and outworkings in our society. I don't think that that is uh, an unreasonable claim to make about the current state of the West. However, he is an eccentric, and so he says eccentric things. Uh, To me, he's kind of like the court jester who tells the truth, but then also tells that truth and speaks truth with a whole lot of absurdity uh, around it. And I think if you put him into that context, it's kind of like, okay, this guy often says things that uh, I think could rightly be classified as dumb, uh, as wrong, as imprudent. But the end result of this trial where he was put on trial for saying these things about the Sandy Hook shooting was he was given the equivalent of a fine of $965 
million US dollars. That is almost 1 billion US dollars. That is absurd. In New Zealand money, that is about, I think it's maybe 1.7 billion at the moment. It's almost 2 billion New Zealand dollars. This man has been fined. And this is an absurdity. You see, in a nutshell, we have long understood in the West that justice without proportionality is not actually justice. And so there's two ways this can go. So one is where you have a lack of proportionality where, let's say, someone murdered another innocent human being and they were fined $100 for murdering someone. We would say that that is not a proportionate response. It fails to recognise the gravity of what was done, of the victimisation and the harm that was done, and fining someone $100 for murder is an absurdity. It lacks proportionality, there's no justice in that. On the other end of the scale, let's say that someone uh, gets caught for jaywalking and they are put in jail for 20 years. We would say that also lacks proportionality. It is an overreaction. And, and in both cases, what you have is a failure of justice. You don't actually have justice without proportionality. This goes all the way back to the Judeo-Christian tradition, and it builds very much on this very important principle from the Old Testament, which is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, a lot of people wrongly think that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was about revenge. That's not what that meant at all. It was about proportionality. It's a principle that comes about at a moment in Jewish history when people could, if they wanted to, just act without any regard for proportionality. So let's say I steal two of your sheep, and in response you say, right, I'm going to kill you for stealing two of my sheep. That's not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a principle that says, no, your response to victimization must be proportionate. Your response to any wrongdoing must be proportionate to the wrongdoing. So if someone steals 10 of your cattle, you can't expect to receive 100 cattle back from them in return. If someone kills you, it would not be proportionate to kill them and their entire family in response. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And there's two ways in which our justice system understands this proportionality playing out. First of all, it should relate to the nature of the wrongdoing. So any sentence, any punishment we give you should be proportionate to the nature of the wrongdoing. But it's also, when we think about proportionality, about the personal situation of the guilty party. Let's say you had someone who committed a crime of passion that resulted in the death of another human being. So let's say you have a man and his wife is engaging in an act of adultery with another man and the two men meet in a pub one night and the victim, the, the man who is in the, 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 the spouse, the husband who is on the receiving end of the adultery in a, in a fit of passion punches that man, the man falls to the ground, knocks his head and dies. And then that man flees the country and then spends the next 20 years of his life in a type of self-imposed exile where he tries to make uh, penance for what he's done. He feels so guilty about it and he dedicates the rest of his life to living in a monastery in absolute poverty and serving every single day, serving the poor and the dying and the destitute in this country that he's fled to. And let's say he's caught 20 years later and he's brought back to his original country of uh, origin of birth where the crime took place and he goes before the courts, the courts would rightly consider the fact that he's been away for 20 years and he's engaged in this 
effectively a, an act of self-imposed punishment for the wrongdoing that he did to that other man. And so the court would say, okay, this was a crime of passion. It wasn't premeditated. There was adultery involved. He was reacting to that. It's still wrong what he did. But then this man spent 20 years of his life living in poverty, serving others to try and make up for what he did. So normally, let's say it was a 10-year prison sentence for a crime of passion. They would say he's already done 20 years, if you like, of a self-imposed uh, punishment. And so therefore, we would take that into consideration. Maybe we might give him a suspended sentence and we might say, well, look, here's the deal. You go back to that country where you're serving the poor, you spend the rest of your life serving the poor. And if you ever deviate from that path, then this suspended sentence will kick into action and you'll have to go to jail. So there's proportionality basically at play in all of this. Another really important way in which the personal situation of the guilty party comes into play when you think about proportional responses is when you are levelling financial punishments, so fines against people. And you would not, for example, fine someone, let's say they had a total annual earnings of $100, that's it, every year that's all they earned, and then you would have fined them $90 for the crime of not wearing a mask in a supermarket during covid you have now fined that person 90% of their annual income. That would be a disproportionate financial punishment against the person. You see, a fine in and of itself is a recognition that the wrongdoing that you are punishing the person for is not as grave or is not at the grave end of the spectrum. It's not murder. It's not rape. It's not uh, a serious assault. It's not theft and damage of, of a person personal uh, property in, in a major way. This is something that is not at the grave end of the wrongdoing spectrum, so therefore it is appropriate and proportionate to levy a financial fine against the person. But if you are then going to fine them, I don't know, 90% of their annual income for something that is not serious enough to actually send a person to jail for, you are now acting in a disproportionate way when it comes to levelling that punishment against the person, and that is not justice. And that's what you've got going on here with the Alex Jones fine. It's an absurdity. The simple truth is it would be less absurd and there would be less injustice if you sent Alex Jones to prison for two years instead of fining him almost a billion dollars, which he has no actual way of paying. We'll talk about that part of the absurdity in just a second. But what you've done here effectively is you've imposed a financial life sentence upon Alex Jones. Even if he was earning a million dollars a year for the rest of his life and he gave every single penny of that one million dollars per year that he was earning, he still would not even be able to pay back 5% of the fine that has been levied against him here. This is absurd. And this is the obvious and glaring contradiction in all of this. On the one hand, the court is saying, look, this is not so serious, like offending and causing emotional hurt to people is not serious enough to warrant a jail sentence, but we are going to impose upon you a fine that will effectively put you under a financial life sentence instead. It is just an absurdity. This is not justice here. This is really revenge and little more than revenge. People who are seeking payback against Alex Jones for offending and causing hurt and emotional distress 
to other people. But like I said, this just doesn't make any sense here. We shouldn't be surprised by this, by the way, though, because we are now living in a culture without any meaningful principle underpinning it. Why? Because we have lost our religious footing. And you need a strong religious footing in order to be able to do moral philosophy. And without moral philosophy, you can't have objective moral principles at play. And without those objective moral principles, then it's hard to have a healthy functioning justice system. Instead, what you get is a situation where those who have power will wield that power against those they deem to be their enemies and proportionality be damned and along with it the concept of justice be damned. It's about revenge, it's about punishment, it's about control and domination of others. And this is where the absurdity starts to heap upon absurdity in this situation. Because even if you're someone who is a diehard opponent of Alex Jones and you think to yourself, no, Brendan, this man should absolutely be punished and this is the right way to do it. We just find the guy out of existence. There's two problems with that. Number one, you still don't have any reason to celebrate here because this is actually empowering Alex Jones and growing his following. It's already very clear to me that that's what's happening here. People are now flocking to this man because of not just the trial, but also the absurdity of the financial punishment that has been levied against him. It's so clear. I'm reading comment after comment after comment from people who are now starting to rally around Alex Jones. That's not what you would want to have happening here, right? If you're no fan of Alex Jones, you don't want him being empowered by all of this, but that is exactly what is going on here? I read an, an absolutely fascinating comment yesterday from someone who said that their female boss had never even heard of Alex Jones until this trial. And as a result of the trial and actually discovering Alex Jones, this guy's boss has now become a follower and a paid up supporter of Alex Jones's media channel. That's the effect that this is actually having. It's it's doing the exact opposite to what it's supposedly supposed to be trying to achieve. Secondly, why none of us should be celebrating this is because to celebrate this outcome is to actually celebrate a sort of Damocles that could one day be used against you or those you admire for simply causing emotional distress emotional upset for being offensive to other people. The simple truth is if this is now the new norm, you should not be surprised to discover that when maybe the people you don't find particularly agreeable find themselves in a position of power, they start using this new tool against you or the people that you admire. This is not good. It's not justice. It's an absurdity. There is no way that this man is even going to be able to pay this fine. He's already said that. So what is the point here? What's the outcome of this? If a man is not even capable of fulfilling the punishment that you've levied against him, it starts to look a lot more like revenge than justice. And in this case, revenge of the most absurd and dangerous kind because all of us could one day find ourselves falling victim to this same lack of principles in response to a man who has caused public outrage, offence and emotional distress 
to other people. Right, I want to finish up today's episode with a little today in history moment. I'm going to try and do these where time allows me to do that in these episodes. So today in history, October the 17th, 1849, Frederick Chopin, the composer and virtuoso pianist, died of tuberculosis in Paris. He was 39 years of age, he was half French, half Polish, and he was an infant prodigy. At seven years of age, he wrote a march that the Grand Duke Constantine used for his military band to play on parade. And a year later, he made his very first public appearance as a soloist. In 1831, he moved to Paris, where he quickly established himself as a fashionable recitalist. Not often you hear that today, is it? And a teacher who was able to command high fees. The historical record tells us that Chopin was calm at the end of his life, and asked only that his unfinished manuscripts be destroyed and that Mozart's Requiem be sung at his funeral. And that funeral was held at the Church of the Madeleine on October the 30th, 1849. So there you go. Today in history, a little bit of historical and cultural enrichment for you. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, live by goodness, truth and beauty, not by lies. And I will see you next time on The Dispatches. On the Clock is brought to you by Left Foot Media. Support our important independent media work at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia with just $5 or more per month and you'll receive exclusive access to our full-length patrons-only episode of the Dispatches podcast every single week. That's patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. Link is in the show notes. (laughs) 